well, guys, I'm impressed that you came back. A series on money is sometimes a bit of a um, divider, or maybe that's a time when people feel called to kind of like take a break from Sunday morning for a while. Um, but I think part of why you're here is because of the really uh, wise and thoughtful way that Rick introduced this series. Uh, before we continue in it, uh, I do want to take a moment to pray specifically for the families of the two police officers who were involved in that tragedy just outside of Caslow, um, both members of the Nelson Police Department. Um, it's a really small department. I know people on the force. I'm friends with a few different people. Yeah, really devastating to lose Officer uh, Titamore and uh, Officer is, um, Nolette is recovering from pretty serious injuries. Um, I'm sure most of you've heard, heard the news, and it's been all over. It's even over national news. Um, whenever these kinds of tragedies happen, I think it's important for the people of God, whether our connection to these men and their families is strong, whether it's weak, to understand there's pe there are people around us grieving, and we want to uh, lift them up and ask God's uh, power and grace in their life. So please join me in prayer for them. God, we come before you and we intercede on behalf of the families of these men. It's difficult to know exactly what to pray for, but we know that in these moments there are hearts crying out for answers, for something to hold on to in the midst of um, having a person so integral to their life um, lost to them or to have a future so uncertain in the case of Officer Nolette. God, we ask for your grace and your power to be um, pervasively felt across the relationships. We pray for those in the police force who are affected, the direct family and friends, the children, those in this community. It's sad to say, God, but these kinds of tragedies can remind us that our, um, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Your word tells us to not teach us to number our days. That's one of the great prayers of Scripture, number our days that we would live with a heart of wisdom. God, that you would uh, surround the Titamore and Nolette family with good friends who will lift them up and be with them during these times of grief. But in the secret places of um, these mourners and grievers' hearts, you would provide comfort and care in a way that is uh, meaningful and specific to their needs. That you would provide comfort, God, through the outpouring of community care and support. And God, also that you would raise up generosity from within this church, within this community, um, to support financially um, these families as they move forward. God, this is the kind of tragedy that shapes not just individual stories, but family stories and community stories. 
we're not exactly sure how we should pray. But we know that you are a God who redeems and restores. So would you, would you redeem and restore the events of this last week? Would you draw people to yourself, open their eyes to your grace, cause them to turn to you, and may we be lifting them up in prayer. We ask your great mercy on all affected during this time of need. In Jesus' name, amen. What we do with money cuts through our pretense and our posturing, and it actually reveals the real preoccupations of our heart. What we do with money shows us what matters most. You and I have stated values, the values that we would say, what's important to you? What are you about? What's your hierarchy of priority? And we would say those things. But that's often not completely, completely aligned to our lived values. There's often a gap between our aspirational values or our stated values and what we're actually living out in the day to day. And one of the challenging things about money is that money causes us to see what we're really living for and living from and living towards. We can have all the right words, it sound amazing, but our calendar and our checkbook and our, um, our calendar and our checkbook really do show us when the rubber meets the road, what we want to give our attention and priority and investment into. That's why we're a lot more comfortable talking about our values than we are talking about how we spend our money. It's a lot safer. It's an abstraction. And part of the reason, well, that's, that's a big reason why it's difficult to talk about money, because it exposes us. But another reason is because money is symbolically loaded for all of us. When we talk about money, we're never actually just talking about money as if it's a, just a thing. Because money represents something to each of us. Right? Everyone has what some have called a money map. It's a way of thinking and feeling about money. And it's been developed over relationships and repetition, especially early on in life. What we were modeled, what was reinforced to us, what was repeated, that we saw, that we were encouraged into. Early formative experiences in the first decade really set us into a certain way of understanding and thinking about money, the emotions we carry when money and finance issues come up. And then they get built over different experiences, good experiences, bad experiences, everything in between. And then over time, what happens is there's this complex web, uh, a, kind of a network that forms that, and slowly solidifies into predominant associations with the topic or even the word finance and money. And just becoming aware that you have a money map is really, really helpful because it will help you understand why for you talking about money is exciting or why you avoid it or why it causes 
deep anxiety, why you want to invest a lot of time thinking about it, why you want to do everything you can to just pretend it's not an issue or maybe deal with stuff really quickly and then move on to other more important things. See, money is never just money. It is invested with symbolic meaning. It's invested with certain core beliefs. It's invested with certain values. So for example, for one person, money might really represent power. And so any talk of generosity is received on the front end as a threat because what you're asking me to do is give up or release power. I don't want to do that. For some people, money equals freedom. That's what money represents. That's why they want more money. It's not about the money. It's about the freedom they perceive they could live into. For some people, we'll flip the script a bit, money represents greed. So they don't want money. They actually have anxiety if they're getting too much money. Because what they associate with money is only greedy people have lots of money. I don't want to be greedy, so I will look for ways to be generous, to give my money away. But it's actually not fueled by generosity. It's fueled because I want to be a good person. And a good person doesn't hoard their money. For some people, money is security. That, that's for me, growing up um, fairly low income with my mom. The dominant emotional association for me, if you were to ask me, Jeff, why would you want more money in your life? It would come down to security. It's tempting for me to feel better if there is money in the bank, so to speak. For some people, money is status, though. I've heard people say, I don't really know how to gauge who's winning in life without making reference to money. Money's really helpful because it shows you who's winning, who's on top. Who's dominating? For some people, money is love. Or again, for some people, money is associated with corruption. So if we understand and even just begin to become aware of what is the dominating emotion or association that I have with money, that can help not solve all the problems, but maybe help you understand how you need to be prayerfully expanding that understanding through this series and maybe where that's caused you to slip and fall or caused friction in relationships. I mean, there's a reason why for almost every married couple, money is one of the dominating, persistent, consistent uh, friction points in the relationship. Couples don't tend to argue over uh, anything much more than money, but the argument's never about money it's about the invested meaning underneath it. Some person is saying, we need to save a lot of money. And what they're saying is, I want to feel more security in my relationship. And the other person is saying, no, no, we need to spend more, specifically on vacations and things that we can have fun with because I want to experience freedom. And they're both talking past each other because while they're talking about money or trying to, they're actually trying to advocate for their own money map, their own way of seeing the world. That can be really frustrating because if we don't understand that different people have different money maps, we might just presume ours is correct and spend all of our time trying to help the other person come to that realization. 
And so it's important for us to recognize that almost all of our money maps are probably grounded in some kind of truth. Money is kind of a form of power. Money can be a way to express love. Having money can afford different kinds of freedom. But when those become a fixation, when they are rebalanced and recalibrated with a broader understanding, then it can, it can, our money can literally become a trap. It can keep us from seeing and using and experiencing the joy that comes from money um, because we are so locked in unconsciously sometimes to I need more money and what we're really chasing is this. And we don't even understand that. So we don't even know how to say, oh God, maybe I don't even need money. Maybe I just need you to show me new ways that I can experience freedom in my life that, that are divorced from money or security in my life that doesn't come from having, you know, three, four or five digit bank account savings account. So I encourage us even just this morning to begin to consider what is that dominating money map for me and just begin to play with, yeah, where did, where did that come from? What, what are some of my earliest experiences with money? And to realize some of that was probably very, very helpful for you. But it's maybe also locked you in to dysfunctional patterns with money. And we want to invite God to change that. We want to ask God to grow us in our understanding of money and finances so that we can experience the fruit of the Spirit in our financial lives. Galatians 5, and 23 is a pretty uh, standard Bible verse that speaks to what happens when we allow, uh, when we cooperate with the Spirit of God instead of resisting or avoiding or, um, uh, yeah, outright rejecting. We're told that the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we often um, generalize that to this is what should continue to, to characterize our life as Christians if we're growing faithfully with Jesus. And that's true. But I thought about it this week, and I thought, that's also a promise for our finances. That's also meant to touch every aspect of our lives. But going into the series, I thought, wouldn't that be amazing to have a relationship and a posture towards money that was characterized by love and joy and peace and goodness and faithfulness and self-control? Wouldn't it be amazing to have a relationship with money that helped to facilitate these things in our life? That didn't work against those things, but actually helped us nurture and cultivate and bring forth those things more and more into our life. That's part of what I want to see happen over this series in my own life. And that is what God wants for us. I am not naive to the financial pressures and stressors that exist across the relationships within this church. But I want to ground us in a fundamental understanding that what God wants to do is provide all those good things the love, the security, the freedom, the joy. But he wants to teach us that anchoring those things in 
money, or more specifically, having more money, isn't necessarily going to be the path that delivers those things into our lives. He is the path. This is where the Spirit wants to lead us. I'm also sensitized as we move into the series that I'm talking to a bunch of different scenarios. And broadly speaking, with as much candor and honesty as uh, I can summon, and as I would share, as some of you have shared with me, I know that there are three broad categories of people who are listening to me. The first is that you're drowning. It feels like you're drowning, whether it's in debt, whether it's just, I don't really have a plan. Um, I have avoided this topic or things in my life or it used to be okay and now it's, it, you're just in chaos and it feels like you can't even get above water and you don't even know what the first step is. And there's another group of people who maybe feel like they are treading water. They're not necessarily making progress. They're not drowning, but it feels like a huge expenditure of energy to just stay afloat. And it doesn't really look like on the horizon things are going to get better. And you are beginning to wonder, how long can I sustain this? I don't want to live like this. And money has slowly become a uh, more and more of a dominating pre preoccupation as inflation has gone up and costs have risen and wages have stagnated and there's different economic stressors in play. And the last group of people are those who are feeling the effects of some of these uh, turbulent uh, waves and crests in the financial uh, sea and the storm that we're in, but they're actually fairly comfortable that they are swimming and they're making progress. And through a combination of uh, their own experiences and good foundations and, and quality decisions, they're in a place where they're like, yeah, I, I've leveraged a lot of knowledge and experience and it's stormy, but I feel like I can navigate these waters. So they're not moving into the future with the same anxiety as the first or second group. And what I want to say is, irrespective of where you are along that spectrum, this series is for you. Because no matter where we are, no matter what our stress load is, no matter our competency or lack thereof as it relates to finances or thinking through how, do our, how does my faith impact my finances and to what extent, we all need to be learning. We all need to be growing. We all want to be moving towards a financial situation characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're going to be speaking to everybody across that spectrum as we go through this series. We're also going to go slow and steady through this series. And this is why, I don't know if you thought it was a joke, but it's not. There's no end date to this series. Rick mentioned that last week. Uh, we have a rough plan, but we want to create space to allow the series to breathe as we come up to situations or topics that we think maybe need more time. And the reason why we're doing that is because we're like, we likely um, don't find ourselves in the situation that we're in because of one or two big decisions. It's a, an accumulation of smaller decision points along the way. Um, and we're, uh, I mean, barring any kind of miraculous thing, but we want to be prepared that God will lead us out of Egypt, but it's not going to be like a day's journey. It's not going to be like, oh, here's quick fix. Boom. You're in Egypt. Bam. Promised land. For them, it was 40 years. Maybe, hopefully it's not that long for us, but God often leads us through a process where we have to learn to trust him and it's slow and steady. So we're not going to be offering tips and tricks and shortcuts because what we're actually trying to do 
is wherever we are to stop and to say, how do I need to reorient my entire money map around God and his generosity and his kingdom and figure out how that connects to all the practical things that I face as a business owner or as a parent or as a, uh, a teenager in my first job or even as a kid being like, I don't really, really think about money that much. I want to invite you and remind you the importance of going into this series with a growth mindset. Money's an area that once you sustain a certain number of losses, it can be easy to sort of resign yourself to saying, I guess this is just the way it is. I'm just bad with money. I don't really know what I'm doing. And I'm too embarrassed to admit that to anybody at this point. Maybe especially as we get older, right? Like there are certain parts of my financial life that it's embarrassing to me as a 45-year-old um, father and husband and Christian that I'm still at a certain place of immaturity when it comes to finances and what I need to do in terms of saying I need help and go to a few trusted people it can be very tempting to say well I just won't say anything and just ride this out for the rest of my life because you can carry shame and many of us carry a lot of shame with money and this is a series where we want to say no we just want to bring into the light what needs to be brought into the light and say yeah I haven't learned some things that I need to learn about faith and finances yet. But I'm going to be open to God leading me. Maybe I'm not good with budgeting, but I'm not good with budgeting yet. Maybe generosity doesn't, honestly, it doesn't really come naturally to me yet. But even that heart shift, that posture shift to say, I'm open to God doing a work in me is really, really important. We're going to emphasize practices and principles from God's word. And we're going to trust that you can apply them to your life in a particular way. And what I mean by that is finances, especially in today's day and age, are very complicated. So it's not going to be helpful for Rick or I or whoever else teaches in this series to stand up and to say, oh, here's something that everybody can do. Paint by number approach. Do this, then this, then this. We're all coming in with a very different money map, with different wounds, with different opportunities, with different resources, intellectual, material, uh, experiential. And so what we need to do as teachers is to point you to biblical principles and practices and then trust that you will appropriate those to your circumstances. And maybe along the way, gain one or two trusted people in your life to say, I've been thinking about this. What do you think? Because often pastors can teach this series from their own frame of reference or teach um, applications that are a bit of a one-size-fits-all approach. And Rick and I want to be careful not to do that. We want to ground you in Scripture, teach what Scripture says, and then walk with you as you discern individually, as couples, as a family, what is going to be the way that we take these principles and apply them. And that's important to note because you might hear someone talk in a small group setting or over coffee about a sermon that they heard and how they're applying it. And you might be tempted to think, oh, you're not applying that right. Oh, you totally didn't hear that message. We were supposed to do this. 
this is a really, really good series to confess your own sins, you follow Jesus, and recognize if you're tempted to think someone else in the community is doing it wrong, there's probably details about their situation that it's actually not even appropriate to share with you. And so we're just trusting that the Spirit will move and our posture towards each other is if some, if, you know, if I share, if Rick shares with me, this is the first step that I'm taking and I'm tempted to think, I wouldn't take that first step if I were you. I was in, what you told me you should do that is like the sixth step. I just say, good for you, Rick. That's awesome. I'm proud of you for doing that. I'm going to pray for you. We encourage one another forward and be attentive to what the Spirit is calling us to do as individuals and couples and families. Okay, last week Rick did a really stellar job introducing this series. He talked about how we need to teach on this because learning about faith and finances actually is a really, really powerful doorway into knowing God better, knowing yourself better, and experiencing a fulfilling life. And he brought attention to the barriers that can often keep us from growth in this area. The first was that we are naturally self-centered. It's just so much easy, easier for us to be a taker. You know, in general, you don't have to train people to be takers. You have to train children and teens and in some cases adults to actually be givers instead of just always defaulting to, well, what about me? I want this. I want more. Our culture doesn't help because it is continually in all kinds of ways reinforcing consumption, me first mentality, me as the center and I'm pulling experiences, people, money, uh, resources towards myself. And then if you layer a scarcity mindset, especially one that was kind of drilled deep into our bones and into our souls and our, and our money map early on, where the vibe that we picked up from people around us is there's not enough. God can't be trusted. We have to live and operate from a place of fundamental anxiety. Even we work hard. Why? Because of the anxiety of what happens if we don't work hard. Not because of the joy or the pleasure or using our gifts or helping our family or community. No, it's driven by anxiety. So a scarcity mindset, the, the not enoughness, the, you know, what's that famous line? If you ask the average person, even wealthy person, how much money they need in order to be happy? The answer is just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Right? We're net, there's a fundamental dissatisfaction and scarcity that can drive us. And these are real barriers. And they're powerful forces that keep us from knowing and trusting God. And they actually, I've experienced it to suffocate the Spirit's ability in my life to bring about the fruit of the Spirit in my own uh, financial life. So when it comes to this vision of experiencing finances and using our finances in a way that actually facilitates love, joy, peace, goodness, self-control, where do we start? Where do we start? Like practically speaking, where do we start? You could start with talking about debt. You could start with talking about um, what it means to uh, save wisely or spend strategically and prudently. Maybe it's investing. Maybe we start with giving. I want to share briefly what I think is the biblical starting point for every single person in this room, myself included. And it's a bit of a blink and you'll miss it insight. 
but it's really, really foundational for this area. See, we could teach on all of the incredible principles and practices that are in the scripture that we will get to that actually do support and lead us into uh, um, holistic financial prosperity and peace and flourishing. But I think the Bible directs us to a different starting point than just jumping right into principles and practices. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthian church to join other churches in providing funds for Christians in Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem have fallen on very difficult times. And that is because they are facing huge persecution. They are predominantly Jewish believers who have embraced Jesus as the Messiah, which means they get ostracized from the religious and economic life of their Jewish believing um, community. So they have been cut off not inhibited, they've been cut off from the ability to uh, just buy and trade and sell or greatly diminished in their capacity. And so they are facing like real abject poverty. They are on, they're on dire straits. And, what Paul, and, and Paul's part of his mission is he plants churches in Gentile communities, non-Jewish communities. He says, would you consider an offering to go back to Jerusalem to encourage our brothers and sisters there? Because Jerusalem is the birth of the church, Acts chapter 2. That's, that was the place. And God chose Abraham's seed of the Jewish people. And it's from them that the world's going to be blessed. So he goes to these non-Jewish Christians and says, you, we actually owe a debt to these brothers and sisters who have embraced Jesus when it was most costly. Would you consider a gift? And he uses... To the Corinthians, and I'm not sure if the subtext here is because they were resistant, because he mentions it in his first letter, but then he brings it up in 2 Corinthians again. So I don't know if the Corinthians are kind of like, uh, like, really? Do we like owe them? I don't know. But there's definitely some hesitancy. He needs to reinforce this message to them. And he uses the example of the church in Macedonia, which was predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish. And he hopes that this, this is going to prompt generosity from the Corinthians. And he writes this, verses 1 to 5, chapter 8, 2 Corinthians. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace of God that has been given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave us so they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Notice verse 4. They pleaded with us for the privilege. Why did they have to plead with Paul? Because when he came to them and he saw the level of their destitution and they were like, we'd like to contribute, likely the response was, guys, like it's okay. Like you're actually not in a position to give right now. Maybe in the future, you're actually not in a position to give. It's, it's, totally, it's totally fine. Just pray for your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And they pleaded with him. You don't have to do a show of hands. How many of you have pleaded 
with the leadership of a church to let you give more money. I have not either, right? Isn't that interesting? They were pleading with Paul, but they were in a place of extreme poverty. But something was done in their hearts such that they were like, what an opportunity. This is amazing. Talk about living from a mindset like Rick talked about last week, where you trust and know God's generosity so much that you, like the widow who goes to the temple and gives all that she has to live on, you're willing to trust God and say, yeah, we have like kind of like less than nothing, but we're going to still give that. What an honor it is to support our brothers and sisters. On the other side of the word, world, many of whom we will never even meet, the side of heaven. It's amazing. But did you notice what their starting point was? The starting point that activated and uh, catalyzed this way of thinking, this way of being, this generosity. It's in verse 5. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord. They gave themselves first to God. And that's actually the thing that makes a Christian approach to finance different than any other approach to finance. I can go into Kohl's, I can go to YouTube, I can... Um, there's all so many avenues through which I can learn amazing principles and practices. Uh, I can consult financial coaches and writers that will even reinforce many of the principles and practices you can find in Scripture. You can find people who will talk about the importance of living generously. Uh, there's financial, secular financial coaches who will talk about tithing or giving a 10% of your income. And they'll come from their perspective and say, that's important for you to do. You can find people who will talk about saving and spending wisely and strategic investing in order to build wealth. But what makes a Christian approach to finances different is that before we get to any of those things, we actually give ourselves to the Lord. And this means we surrender our lives and our finances to God and to his purposes. Like all of it. All of our material wealth. It starts with a conversion of the wallet. Under Charlemagne's rule in the 8th century, there were many people who were invited, slashed, coerced, to be baptized as part of the Holy Roman Empire. And that was a baseline expectation for soldiers in the army. You're a crusader. Part of what you're doing is you're advancing and building this empire, which is a visible manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. And soldiers would go down to the river en masse to take the plunge. And we're not sure if this is a detail that has been embellished over time. There's no direct record, but there are um, references generations after the fact. And one source reports that one thing was a little bit unusual about the baptism of these soldiers. And that is when they would go under the water, they would hold their right hand above the water. Because that's the hand of warfare. That's where I hold my sword. And God can have every part of my life, but I'm not going to allow him to baptize and to purify this instrument of warfare. 
And for me, when I think of that picture, I am deeply convicted of the amount of times in my life where I have, in a service, in a time of prayer, in a time of commitment, I've said, God, you can have all of me. It's sincere. I really, really honestly mean it. But I held my wallet above the water. This is the arena where I want to negotiate the terms. But God, look at what I am giving you. I'm giving you 90%. I'm giving you 95%. But again, because that wallet, it's not about money. It's about my freedom. It's about my power. It's about my security. That's actually the thing that I don't want to trust God for. I don't know if I can trust God for. So I'll trust God for the lesser things. But that thing, it's so tempting to hold that above the water. But what baptism is, is an invitation to die to yourself. And that's why baptism is scary. Because it means I'm trusting all of who I am all of what I have to God. And I've tried to live at different times in my life, being almost fully surrendered to God, except for in this area. But I know that I experience a diminishment of God's power and presence in my life because of it. Because again, it's not about the money. It's about there's a heart need that I have that I am not willing to trust God to fill. And in my case, it's security. It's a sense of peace. We can't allow ourselves to be baptized holding anything above the water. But for many of us, one of the things that's most tempting to hold above the water is our wallets. And what the Macedonian church did is they said, it's all for Jesus. I surrender everything. And that's the starting point of change in the Christian life. I mean, it's literally the starting point of change when you say, I'm going to be baptized because I'm dying to myself and now I'm coming up out of the water. I'm living for Jesus. I don't know exactly all that means. I don't know where that journey is going to take me, but I know that Jesus is Lord. I love Jesus. I'm committed to him. But as we go along the journey of life, there are other decision points. My marriage is in trouble. I am experiencing huge fallout in this area of my life. I feel lost and out of control over here. And the starting point to address any area is not, oh, jump into the Bible, uh, look up uh, tips and tricks for uh, how to have uh, better uh, navigate conflict in your relationship. Okay, boom, boom, boom. The first step of any movement of real redemption in your life is to say, God, I don't even know what to do. But before I take one step, I want to surrender to you. I want to give this situation to you. I want to give my marriage to you. I want to give my finances to you. I want to give um, my body, my sexuality to you. I want to give my job to you. I want to give my future to you. That's where we start. We give ourselves fully to God. That's why Martin Luther said the Christian life is one of repentance. It's not like, you, oh, I gave my life to Jesus back in the day at a Bible camp. Yeah, you did. And now you have to, at certain critical junctures, keep going back and saying, oh, this is an area 
where I moved into it with the intention to honor God, but I've slowly sort of pushed God away. Or I've taken the reins. Maybe it happened overnight. Maybe it was a slow burn. But I realize I'm actually not surrendered in this area. So that's where we need to start. It doesn't matter what the problem is. It could be financial, relational, sexual, psychological, vocational. The first step is always the same, to draw upon the power of God. It's to give ourselves fully to God. Your kingdom come in this area, God. Your will be done. I surrender my my preferences. I surrender my preferred outcomes. I'm not surrendering as long as you bring me to this place. I'm just surrendering and trusting that you will provide what I need. I'm wanting to live willingly, not willfully. This isn't a negotiation where I'm holding you hostage. I'm holding my, I'll give you my devotion as long as you fix this area of my life, you clean this up, you bring me boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wealth, prosperity, and kind of like on a short timeline. No, it's God, I'm yours. I mean, it's, it's a massive leap of faith. But it's actually the thing that distinguishes a Christian approach to anything from any alternative. And it doesn't mean being passive or abdicating responsibility. Oh, giving yourself to the Lord? Oh, just let go and let God. Like, I'm not going to worry about my finances. I'm just going to trust God. No. It actually means leaning into more responsibility. Because now you're saying, my life isn't mine. I'm a steward. I'm learning how do I, first and foremost, honor and bless God and honor and bless people through this area. So it actually means taking on a mantle of greater responsibility. But instead of trying to pursue and force your own agenda, you're saying whatever parts of that agenda are good, God, redeem it and use it. But whatever part of this agenda is driven, is going to drive me into the ground or drive this relationship or this opportunity into the ground, God, just kill it. Bring it, bring it to an end. Your will be done. I trust you to orchestrate the direction of my life way more than I trust myself. It means decentering and saying, I'm going to seek first God in his kingdom. So as we move into the series, if you want God's power and God's provision to actually be a feature of your financial life, this is the starting point. It's actually giving your life to Christ, giving yourself to Christ. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, now is the hour to do it. Today is the day to do it. And finances might be the pressure point that God is using to confront you and say, you actually need me. You think you need money. You think you need financial counsel. You think you need a new um, strategy. You actually need me. And if you have given your life to Christ, finances might be a pressure point where you are being confronted with a similar message. This is an area that you haven't yielded to me. That you're very quick to try and read and glean and get things in order and get out of the chaos and move into prosperity. But it's still kind of untethered from a fundamental devotion and commitment to me. You are interested in leveraging Christian principles, but less interested in actually abiding and communing with Christ. And that's out of order. 
I thought a lot about where to go from here, what to invite you into. And I actually, I, I don't know. I kind of came up blank. So I'm going to give a very broad application and invite the spirit to bring to your imagination what this looks like for you. I think it's always important when God brings us to a decision point to solidify that with some kind of ritual, some kind of a marking. In the Old Testament, it was an Ebenezer. God does something amazing. You build this thing of stone so that whenever you see that stones, you're like, oh, that's where God did this. That's where God parted the Jordan. I invite you to ask God, is there a ritual? Maybe it's going up by yourself and it's writing something down. Maybe it's writing out a prayer of surrender. Uh, it doesn't have to be big or ostentatious. Maybe it's, yeah, writing on a on something, putting something up, uh, making something. Is there some ritual that you can do that for you in your relationship with God says, before I get to anything else, God, I want to surrender to you. I want to give myself to you first. And I want to confess I haven't been doing that or I've been reluctant to do that. I've been scared to do that. Or I've been saying to myself, well, I don't need to do it fully over here because I do a lot over here. But I'm convicted that this is an area I need to surrender to you. I don't know what that ritual, that process looks like, but I invite you to do it personally. Not as a couple, not as a family. You do it yourself. That is what I'm calling you to do over the next, let's say, 24 to 48 hours. That's the homework. Nothing else. Do something that for you solidifies if it's the desire of your heart. I mean, don't go through the motions if it's not. But if it is, do something that says to you and to God, I mean business. I might be scared. I might be unsure. I might have a catch in my throat. But in this moment where I feel like I want to be the most faithful I can be, God, your kingdom come in my finances. You do whatever you need to do in my life. I know that level of spiritual vulnerability is massively difficult. So let me pray for us. God, money and finances touch upon the most jugular, high stakes things in our life. And so for many of us, it's tempting to withhold or to limit your influence in that area. And to Rick's message last week, that's so often because we have a fundamental misunderstanding of your character. Because if we understand and know you and your generosity and your grace and your love, we would be so eager to trust you, to give ourselves first to you. I want this church in a year from now, across the board, to be in a financially healthy, um, holistically prosperous place. But I don't want that to happen if all we've done is learned some new strategic maneuvers through our checkbooks. I want it to come because we are learning and being uh, encouraging to one another to surrender ourselves to you. Maybe we don't even understand what that means fully, God, but would you set something on our hearts to do over the next 
24 to 48 hours that cements this commitment. Give us faith to trust what you say, to trust who you are, and trust that you can transform our lives and our finances for your glory and our neighbor's good and our blessing and enjoyment. Amen.